Let us begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, today, as we remember Christ as our King, please speak to us through your words in Scripture and teach us to love and submit to our King. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. If I ask you, what is the gospel? How would you answer? Most people will point to how Jesus died on that cross to take up our sins, to pay the penalty for sins so that we can be saved. Put your trust in Jesus because he can save you, we will point out. However, this is just half of the gospel. And if this is what you say as you're sharing of the gospel message, then you have not shared the gospel, not in its full sense. Now, if that's shocking to you, to hear that you might have not understood the gospel, then you want to pay close attention today. The other half that we often forget to tell people is that Jesus did not remain dead but rose up from the dead as our Lord to whom we submit and obey. In other words, the other half of the gospel that we tend to forget about is that Jesus is King. We don't just call people to come and have their sins forgiven, but we call them to come and obey Jesus as their King. Failure to proclaim Christ's kingship over our lives and only present the forgiveness of sins makes our gospel sharing incomplete. Obedience to Christ our King is an important part of the gospel, yet is often neglected. Because we don't often think rightly or think enough about how this truth applies to our life. So, in light of that, it's appropriate that today, on Christ the King Sunday, we take some time to truly appreciate what it means to us that Jesus is King and reaffirm our submission to Him. Point one. Now, if we look at the biblical revelation of God's plan for kingship, we will find that it seems like an idea that changes over time. Of course, ultimately, the final plan was always God's plan, but it was revealed to us in stages, step by step, in the Bible. Point A, we see in Genesis that God is the one who rules over all things. He only needs to command, and creation bends to his word. And in this, we directly see that God rules over all things. While the term king is not directly used there, that is the implication, then, of God's sovereignty over all things. So we see this idea clarified further in our psalm reading, Psalm 93, verse 1. God is a God who reigns. He is the one with all authority and power. And in that sense, He is a king. And under His kingship, the world is established and will not be moved. So this shows us that God's kingship establishes his plans for the world. 
The world is under God's kingship and He will do with it as He wills. What God wants to happen will happen as God intends. And that is what is implied by God's kingship and absolute dominion over all things. We also see that God's throne, His seat of the kingship, is one that is established forever as seen in verse 2. The kingship then is an eternal kingship and is something that is a part of the very nature of who God is. We also see from the psalm that God is a mighty God above all things that he had created. And in his might that cannot be surpassed, God rules over all things. In Psalm 47, verses 6 to 7, we see that we too are to sing praises to God because God is the king of the earth. Thus, we can see the original idea of God's kingship. It's about having authority to do with the world as he pleases without restraint. And we are all subject to his kingship. It is eternal. It is rooted in the nature of who God is. While we are used to the idea of a constitutional monarchy, wherein our king's power is limited by the constitution, God, however, is not that kind of king. He is an absolute monarch. And while this idea can be scary when applied to a human ruler who's given absolute power, with God, this is good news. Because God is holy, perfect, just, and a loving king who always does what is right. So, all things considered, we want God to be our forever king. However, we know that as humans, we naturally reject his kingship over us. That is what led us to sin and death through the rebellion of Adam and Eve and through our sinful nature. And that sinful nature is inherited. And so by nature, we are creatures who rebel against the rightful king. And we deserve that judgment from God. Yet, despite our foolishness, God is a king that shows grace and mercy in how he deals with rebels like us. So the big question is, how can God work his grace and mercy in such a way that sinners like us can submit to God as king? And that's the question that's going to lead us to see why it is important for us that Christ is king. Point B. So with that, we come to our Old Testament reading for today. In Daniel 7, we come to verse 9 to 10, where we see God, here described as the Ancient of Days, seated on his throne. He is pictured here as wise, powerful, and holy in symbolic terms. There's a meaning behind the white robe and the white hair. And to give you some context, in the book of Daniel, God's people are crushed and enslaved by the Babylonians. They no longer have a king, a kingdom, or land. The king that they have to obey now is the Babylonian king. So one big theme in the book of Daniel is to show us that God is still the king and will redeem his people. And more than anything, these exiled Israelites need to see that despite the situation, God is still the greater king, even if they are now to submit to the Babylonian king as their current king. So, as we look at Daniel's description of God, we see in verse 10 that God is a God who is a king that sits in 
authority. And a great number of people are standing before him to await his judgment. As flames that represent God's judgment comes up before him, even as the books are open. The Israelites need to see that with God, there is hope for justice and righteousness that they can appeal to even in their exile. So, it is in God that they must put their trust. It is God who is the ultimate arbiter of their lives. So far, no problem. Then, we come to verse 13 to 14. And we see in Daniel's vision that one like a son of man comes down from the cloud. This person is descending from heaven with the cloud. So he can't be a mere human, yet at the same time, he is like a son of man, which means he is in the likeness of mankind. This man then comes before the throne of God, and God gives him dominion, glory, and an eternal kingdom. Then we see all people, nation, and language have to serve him. God gives him an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. In essence, God gives a human being his kingship. Why is this shocking? Well, for the Israelites, this would mean that they are now looking for a human king to whom God is going to be giving all power and authority. Now, this isn't really strange to them because they will remember that God has promised King David that one day a descendant of him uh, of his will rule and that kingdom will be for all eternity. And even in Adam, we already see a type of that king because Adam was made in the image of God to have dominion over the earth and all things therein. In other words, Adam was a model of God's kingship, though he was never identified specifically as a king. So we find out through Daniel's vision that this person who comes before the Ancient of Days, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is to be the king over God's kingdom, and therefore over God's people, and this man is whom they need to put their hopes in. Now, put yourself in their shoes. The Israelites are in exile and in so much trouble because the kings that they had have turned away from God. For their hope to have any meaning, they will need a king who is greater even than David, whose kingdom did not last forever. They need a king who is perfect and righteous. It must be someone from David's line, but it must also be someone who can come down from heaven. Can any human being be worthy to shoulder this? Can any human come from heaven? How will this be fulfilled? The big concern that I imagine that Daniel would have was the question of, will there ever be a king who is worthy enough? Since they have seen throughout their history that mankind and God's kingship just doesn't work out because we are inherently sinful and we fail to obey God with all our hearts. The whole point of the law and the Old Testament scripture is to tell us there's really no hope in humanity to come to salvation by its own strength after all. So how can a human king bring about hope for the people? But see, now having recently finished our study on 1 Samuel, we are in a better position to think about this idea of biblical kingship and the problems we have in trusting a human king, right? We remember back in 1 Samuel 
when the people of Israel asked for a human king that is like the king that the nation had, God told the prophet Samuel that it is God himself that the people have rejected. God was the true king, and in asking for a king like the nations, the people reject God's kingship. Yet God still did give them the kind of king they wanted in the person of Saul. And we all know how badly that turned out. The point of that is to show us that this kind of king, the one based on our desire for worldly victory and behavior, a king like the nation, will not save the people of God. Yet at the same time, we also know that God's plan ultimately did point to a human king because God did choose David. So we see from 1 Samuel that the right type of king is a type of king that God chooses. Not a king like the nation, but rather a king who is after God's own heart. We do see this in David as he was anointed as a king in secret. In David, we see a flawed human being, yet always having the heart that genuinely turns to God when he realizes that he is walking away from God. Now, David was not perfect, but in David, we see a shadow of the Son of Man who will come from the cloud to receive the kingship. We see that God, even as he establishes the human kingship in 1 Samuel, is setting the path then for his plan to bring about a human king that is worthy to receive eternal kingship. So we need a king who's greater than David, but not able to fail and sin like David has done. This will be the king to whom God will give all power and authority as we saw in Daniel chapter 7. The, this king then will be the true hope for a people who hunger for the goodness that comes from a king whom God approves of. But we have to ask the question, right? So why choose a human king? Why not just teach them to accept, right? God is truly the king who rules with all power. Accept it. Why settle for a human king at all? And here's where all the things that we've seen together comes. Jesus is God's chosen king, the Messiah. Yet, Jesus is not merely human. Yes, he was fully human, but he was also fully God, who took on flesh in the incarnation to be born as a person who is fully God and fully man. So in Jesus, we can see one like a son of man, but he comes down from heaven with the clouds. He is both like us, yet at the same time fully divine. Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, while being fully man through Mary, did not inherit that sinful nature of Adam that the rest of humanity inherited. This means Jesus is the perfect king that fully follows God with all his heart, mind, body, and soul. And it is not in his nature to sin. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in him. 1 Peter chapter 2. In him there is no sin. 1 John chapter 3. So this is why the New Testament makes it so clear that Jesus never sinned in anything that he did. See, our hope is in a king who will come to be without sin. So in Jesus then, we have a king 
whose obedience to God is perfect, better than David. And when Jesus is presented before the Ancient of Days, he is found worthy. Thus the obedience of Jesus, even unto death on a cross, shows us he is fit to be God's king. What we also have in Jesus is that he is a king who is fully human and at that same time fully God himself. So in his humanity, this allows Jesus to be the one who fully identifies with his people. He takes on their sin and is the leader who, because he has suffered like we do, sympathizes and understands our weaknesses and our failures. See, this is why Jesus needed to be baptized, even though he had no need to repent. He does all things well, so he can be identified with us, who are terrible sinners who needed that baptism of repentance. Have you seen the difference uh, between a boss who just inherits his position and has no idea of the realities of work, and a boss who has risen up from the ranks himself, the one who has experienced what the workers have experienced. And that boss is able to lead better because that boss understands what it's like to be a worker. He will, set, he will not set unachievable standards and he will understand our failures and differentiate that with our rejection of him. And he will seek to help us to do better. And that is who King Jesus is to us. So even as we fail him every day, he intercedes on our behalf. He works in our heart through the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us. Point D. So what then is the implication to us that Jesus is the perfect king who is fully man and fully God? Well, that should make it easier for us to put our trust in him, right? God has worked things in such a way that through his son, God is still king. And through that very same son, he works out our salvation. So that even if we fail, there is forgiveness through the blood of Christ. So we have a human leader that have experienced our situation. Yet at the same time, he is perfect in holiness, righteousness, and he's all-powerful because... He is God. This is why the kingship of Christ is important. This is why it's an essential part of the gospel. Because Christ came in one sense to bridge that gap between God and man. He takes on the flesh so he can redeem fallen children and exalt us to become God's children. Therefore, apart from faith and trust in Christ, there is no true and meaningful relationship with God. Throughout human history, as far back as recorded time, and doubtless even before then, kings, princes, tribal chiefs, presidents, dictators, they have sent their subjects into battle to die for them. Only in Jesus has a king not sent a subject to die for him, but instead died for his subject. This is a perfect king who has loved us so perfectly so should we not love him then with all our heart and seek to obey him in all things, knowing that he only has our best in his heart? Point two. So now we know why Jesus is so unique and special and why his kingship is so necessary to reconcile us to God 
But we still need to ask the question, what kind of king is Jesus? To see that, we want to come to our New Testament reading today from John 18. Point A. As we come to John 18 and we look at verse 36, we see Jesus answering Pilate's question if Jesus was the king of the Jews. Jesus answers in an interesting manner. He is a king, but his kingdom is not of the world. And what Jesus meant here is that his kingship, his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, one that is established by God, secured by God. He does not rely on his followers to fight for him and exalt him. He only relies on God. And we can see that the whole point of why Jesus is there before Pilate in chains is because he trusted in God and was obedient. Your will be done, not mine, he prayed the night before. That is why he says here that his followers are not to go out there and fight to make Jesus' kingdom into an earthly reality. If he's going to the cross as God wants him to do, then he will willingly go. And here we see the character of this king. He has full and complete trust in God and God's plan, despite how his personal situation looks like. In fact, he trusts God so completely that he goes to the cross and dies. So as you understand this, in this exchange between Jesus and Pilate, come to verse 37 and look at the purpose behind why Jesus came into the world. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And he does reveal the truth to us, doesn't he? He reveals it through his example of his life and his teaching. He calls us to obey. He calls us to repent. He calls us to put our trust in him as our king. Point B. So as part of the truth that he teaches us, we can look to Jesus, our king, and see his character, which shows us what kind of king he is. We can see that Jesus is humble. He is a king. But he comes to serve and not to be served. He's faithful to God. He does not sin, but considers the work of his father as one of utmost importance. He shows forgiveness, love, compassion without bounds. He is righteous in all things, even in his anger. He trusts God and is meek before others, knowing that God is in control. So as we see the character of Jesus as our king, do we really believe that we can do better? Can we, on our own effort, find a better king? It's impossible, isn't it? Point C. So knowing then how unique, how precious our king is, do we treat him as precious? Do we listen? Do we obey? We should, right? Jesus comes to bring the truth and he teaches us what that looks like. And as we read through his teachings, we see that. And I'm sure you all agree with all the things. But remember, you can agree with everything and still do wrong. Notice how Pilate did not disagree with Jesus. In fact, he found him not guilty. Yet he did not listen to the truth of Jesus and obey him. And in that way, we can nod and shout Amen when I see things like Jesus calls us to obey and repent and trust him. Yeah, we can agree for sure, but the real question is, do we do this? And if we don't, we are not submitting to our king, right? A businessman who is well known for his ruthlessness in his business dealings once announced to this writer, Mark Twain, Before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I will climb Mount Sinai 
And on top of it, I will read the Ten Commandments aloud. I have a better idea, replied Mark Twain. Stay in Boston and keep them. Keeping God's word and commandments is more important than just reading them. Christ, your King, keeps them and he urges you to keep them too. So seek to obey God in all things because this is the example that the King who saved you sets for you. Point three. Now, when we talk about the things that Jesus has said and done, we are in danger of forgetting that he is risen and he is alive. So to remind us that we have a living king who is seated at the right hand of God, we should explore the promises of God that Christ will return. 3a. We come then to our reading from Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, we see that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's alive and he's the ruler of all the kings on earth. Verse 5 to 6 also reminds us that we have been made clean of sin and now are part of his kingdom. We are his priests to the world. We have a responsibility that we are to fulfill by telling people about the gospel, by living in light of what he has asked us to do and in responding to him as our king. So because of this, Revelation also reminds us from chapter 1 verse 7, Christ is coming back. He is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him, even those who rejected him. And every tribe will wail. Because Jesus is not coming back to just hang around and chill. He comes in the fullness of the kingship that has been given to him by the Ancient of Days. And he comes with judgment. To those who reject him, those who willfully disobey him. If you remember in Psalm 2, God declares that he has placed his king in Zion and Christ now rules over all things, all nations, all people. This isn't just a statement, it's a warning. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. 3b. Therefore, there's a serious implication here. Christ sees all that we do and will come to judge. There will come a day when we have to give him an accounting of all that we have done. In the things that we have done, we need to show repentance for our sin and a genuine desire to do his work. In the things that we have not done, we need to learn actively to listen and obey. We need to change because we do have a king and we are answerable to him and he is coming back. Now, if you know there's going to be an audit at the office where you work, will you not make sure that everything needed is done properly? How much more when we know that we are going to be audited by a divine king who's in heaven, who sees and knows all the things that we do, who knows what's in our heart. So we need to take stock of our lives and ask the question, are we living with Christ as our king in all that we do? Or are we in danger of having certain areas where we ourselves think of ourselves as king and not Christ? And there may be areas in your life that you're tempted to decide on what is right and wrong based on your desires. For example, you might say, it should be my choice on who I date, who I sleep with, how I run my business, how I behave at my home. But the reality is Jesus is king. And all these things are under his dominion. And we have to answer him. So, conclusion point four. 
So as we come to the end of our sermon, let us remember these few points. Number one, Christ is the perfect king. He's fully man, fully God, and thus the only one who can be the king that we need, that cleanses us from sin and rules over us in a manner that we can relate to. Number two, Christ has told us how to live our lives. We are to see his example and live accordingly. And finally, number three, Christ will return and each and every one of us have to answer to him. So in all things, look at your life. If you're unsure, come, talk to your pastors, your GG leaders or older mature Christians. Let them look into your life. Teach you what are things that you should change because you will have to answer in the end. So for this day, where we remember that Christ is King, let us resolve to remember what we have learned today about Him. See how precious He is and seek to love and obey Him in all things. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Jesus Christ is our King. Thank you, Lord, for we could not have found a better king had we searched high and low. But Father, we are sinful men. And even as we know Christ intercedes on our behalf and forgives our sins, we continue to sin. Have mercy on us, merciful Father, and help us to change, to obey this king, to exalt him with our lives, and to love him with every day and every beat of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.